0: If you think about it, there's all these business people who are kind of like, all right, well, I made it through the last one. Everybody knows it's going to come back.
1: And I think we're looking at a more extensive version of security and checks that came after 9-11.
0: I think we're entering into a phase now where we're really going to find out what happens after everybody has watched all the Netflix shows that they want to watch.
1: There could be a W curve um, that's kind of being projected in some of the emerging markets that I invest in. Welcome to the Beyond Capital podcast. In our purpose driven world, leadership is increasingly crucial. Now, more than ever, stakeholders are demanding the integration of social values and causes in everything from shoes to soap to investments. We are bringing you the stories of leaders that are marrying profit with purpose. I'm Eva Yazari, CEO of Beyond Capital.
0: And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Appreciate.
1: And this is the Beyond Capital Podcast.
0: Today, we have a special episode. Where is purpose-driven business headed in a post-COVID world?
1: It's a big topic, Ed, but I'm really excited to discuss it with you.
0: I am too. I am too. I've been talking to a lot of people and CEOs, uh, managers, people who are just sort of customers and living in the economy. And um, it's, it's hard to say where things are headed, um, but we're going to try to unwrap it today.
1: Sounds good. And I think at the end of the day, everyone wants information about how to think about the future. And um, we're both very lucky to have discussions with people and groups that have really interesting views. And today is the day that we're going to share it with our audience.
0: I think the hardest thing about this topic is among my friends and acquaintances in the world of business, CEOs and board directors and investors, it seems almost like they're split 50-50 between feeling like this is going to be a quick bounce back and the world's going to be stronger and better than ever, and then others who feel like we're headed into a depression. Have you had similar experiences?
1: I have. I have. And I often wonder how it's possible that there could actually be such divergent views on where the future is headed. And I think that that comes down to the fact that there are so many moving parts. On one hand, there are people who have deeply felt how interconnected and interdependent we are on this planet and how something that happens in one side of our globe can impact the entire world. And they are hopeful that this will breed more inclusive thinking that we'll work together, that we'll share learnings and resources. But then there are those that have more of a, I would call scarcity mindset uh, that kind of resort to fear or hate or blame And I think that that group sees the world as being more divided, sees the economy as being severely damaged, and that we will enter a depression. Um, Some people think it's U-shaped recovery. Some people think it's W-shaped recovery with um, a second wave. But um, there are definitely two camps out there. I've observed that as well.
0: So the W-shaped refers to that things are going to come back, and then there's going to be a resurgence of this virus, and then everybody's going to collapse again. Is that the...
1: It is, exactly. I think particularly in India and some of the developing countries that had a lockdown early, but then... Possibly could open back up and have a resurgence, um, particularly with weaker health systems that can't control the virus in the same way. There could be a W curve um, that's kind of being projected in some of the emerging markets that I invest in.
0: I mean, one thing's for sure, there's massive changes happening. Just taking travel into account, you know, airlines and hotels. I I don't know what the hotel business is going to look like after this is all over. It's just mind boggling.
1: It is. It is mind boggling. And as you know, who man, my husband is an aviation professional and um, he was on a big call with the kind of aviation industry group and describing to me afterwards that they're already making structural changes to security. Um, the, uh, the, uh, transfer times are lengthening. And I think we're looking at a more extensive version of security and checks that came after nine 11. Um, so I think, you know, we were saying that the cost of travel is just going to go up. I mean, also what do you do if you have to hit the ground and quarantine for two weeks before your business meeting, it's virtually impossible.
0: It depends where you're at. I mean, Let's be honest, if you're in Hawaii or <laughs> could be pretty well, boss, you know, I, you know, we've got that big account in Hawaii. I'm going to have to go visit. And of course, there's the quarantine. So I'll be back in three weeks with a tan.
1: I, I agree. And I think one of the um, more anecdotal trends that I've observed amongst my peers, as well as YPOers and business leaders, is that we're all used to traveling <laughs> And, um, we miss it. We miss being a part of the world and visiting other places and interacting with different people to do our business day to day.
0: I know in a way we sort of lived through a golden age of travel. Yeah. The way that it was just so integrated into our lives. And, and now, you know, when's the last time you've been on an airplane?
1: First week of March was when to San Diego.
0: That yeah, was me too. First week of March. So, yes. So it's been two months. I guess that's not tragic.
1: No, it's not tragic. I mean, I also had my daughter last year, so I had that, that period of not traveling, um, for, for at least two months. Um, so it doesn't feel much different than that, but I do have to say I miss India and Africa so much. I miss that vibrancy and the energy of being in countries with such great potential. Um, and, uh, I don't know when I'll be able to get back there.
0: Well, I mean, I think when we look at trends that are, that are really accelerating, you know, there's all the obvious ones, um, you know, more virtual interactions. We're doing this virtually and we used to do them in person. Yes. Um, you know, we have more sort of home activities. So there's a big spike in puzzle sales, although I think that's probably coming down a little bit. I think we're entering into a phase now where we're really going to find out what happens after everybody has watched all the Netflix shows that they want to watch. Um, yes, you know, Then what do you do? Is it going to revert to more calling up friends, more hobbies, more learning, more reading?
1: Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, I love one of your LinkedIn posts about this being a time to really deepen connections and that you were calling calling people more often. I've heard that as well across the board that, you know, people who were only reachable by text are now picking up the phone and we are all able to deepen our relationships with people inside and outside of our homes um, using technology, um, which I think has really saved us in many ways during this period um, and continues to do so for people around the globe. But that really stood out to me. And I actually think about it weekly because I'm like, just, you know, give people, give people a call and really, really go deep um, and understand, you know, what, what they're thinking, how they're feeling.
0: I think when we get into the deep psyche of it, like when you, when you launch from that point, which you just described, and we've heard it even with, with our friends about uh, CEOs who say, "Wow, this has been the best thing." You know, I've traveled so much less. I'm spending more time with my kids than ever. You know, once once you've experienced that, hey, I can do business without traveling so much. I yeah. I do think that we're just going to see a a closer knit family unit um, and and less urgency to to you know be away from. Your family just to go to a conference or whatever the case may be um, and the same thing for people working from home we have some some people on our team appreciate who whose lives are markedly better because they're working from home yeah it's saving 45 minutes to commute each way i mean imagine that an hour and a half a day times five is like i don't know what is that seven eight hours it's a yeah. whole day that they spend in their car it's crazy
1: Absolutely. I think we will rethink a lot of the ways that we function uh, in our homes, in our families, and in our societies. Um, There's already a trend towards conscious, more conscious consumerism and being more aware of companies that we're supporting. There's this great tracker um, on Just Capital's website, and it shares what the hundred top companies are doing in America for their employees or what they're not doing to help create a bifurcation of businesses that are integrating workforce practices, bonuses, and additional pay for employees on front lines and those that are not walking the talk and really help people understand that this is not just about social outcomes. It's also about risk mitigation in their businesses.
0: You want to name any names?
1: Yeah. I mean, the list is right on the website. We, um, we're looking at Anheuser-Busch temporarily increasing pay for frontline employees. Aldi, the low cost supermarket chain, also giving 10% bonuses to store employees that are working during this time. Um, of course there are all of the companies that are, that are working on, um, you know, just work from home policies. And, you know, it's funny, Ed, when you talked about going through the B Corp certification and the remote work environmental policy, it seemed so foreign to me that it would be a necessary policy. But I mean, think about all the people working from home and, you know, what their, what their impact could be also working from home. So I think that there is probably even more that a lot of these companies can do that the B Corp movement has pointed out. Um, But, you know, a lot of it just comes down to worker safety and additional pay and acknowledgement of the fact that um, workforces are vulnerable. And then of course there are businesses that are not paying dividends or perhaps not buying back stock um that are um doing so so that they can keep their employees on board.
0: When you think about the working from home, obviously that's more of a office worker kind of deal. Um yes. you know, when when you're producing products or in retail, you know, services, the haircut I need so badly. <laughs> these these um uh, things uh separate, right? Cuz a lot of people will still be driving to work. But if you take all the people who who have office jobs, and like they don't go to work half the time, I bet that that would solve a lot of traffic problems and infrastructure costs. I was actually reading, and I I didn't get the the full scoop on this, but Santa Clara County, which is basically where Silicon Valley is in California, that they were actually looking at how to permanently either incentivize or regulate or something like that. Permanently uh, encourage this working from home because the quality of life has gone up so much, less traffic, and so on. So, as for my company, I know I'm thinking for sure, uh, you know, I'm working from home at least a couple of days a week, at least. Um, you know, it's just think how much I'm going to save in shoes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, I read that about Santa Clara as well, and and I think there will be some policy changes. Um, hopefully, that um, we've we've learned from this period that um, our environment does benefit from a reduction in traffic, and you know, to a certain extent, people leaving their homes. I mean, it's a careful balance, as you pointed out on one of our most recent podcast interviews, that we can't shut down the economy for the environment but i think that seeing the effects of this shutdown period on climate change and how the how nature is recovering for a short period of time um i think will help spur some good policies
0: yeah and one other thing is just i feel like i just see more birds i don't know oh yes I, is that me
1: no, it is not you and um Where were they? There are reports. I, I actually I don't know where they were. I mean, it is the springtime so new <laughs> ones may have been born, but um, but we have seen we've seen a lot a lot more birds in in our yard. Also, there's a there's a bobcat that's been more bold and coming into our yard. Um and oh, wow. there have been reports in India as well. Um I'm speaking to some of my board members, advisors, portfolio companies, of the animals being more confident.
0: So speaking of India and Africa, I think everybody would love to know, like, so, so we just kind of broke down some thoughts on the U.S. Maybe you can take yeah. us through India and Africa and what what you think the effects might be in those types of environments.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, you know, when we think about frontier markets, we often think, extreme poverty and then when you overlay covid on that you probably would see an extremely um just just bad situation um however i've been really impressed with how the governments um have dealt with covid-19 so in india as people probably know they're on the second half of a six week lockdown and they've just started to phase in different green um green and blue and uh, red zones, um, which uh, are different levels of density and allow people to kind of go back to more business and daily daily life. And and in Africa, they have also had lockdowns, but Africa is also no stranger to epidemics um, with Ebola and also HIV. In the past, they have very strong community health systems. Um, where information is quickly disseminated down to the rural village, as well as having really sophisticated contact tracing. So our board member that lives between Cairo and Nairobi was telling me that, and he's Ugandan, was telling me that the Ugandan government was just calling everybody that flew in from out of the country and getting them tested in March, um, and really contact tracing, And so they've been sophisticated. The other side of the coin though, is that they don't have the capability to put in place stimulus plans like the West does. And so that will, it will impact um, the economy getting restarted. So the IMF, for example, in India revised their growth estimate from 5.8% down to 1.9% post pandemic. Okay. Yeah. And, and, um, and in Africa, it's looking like anywhere from a 3%, 3 to 8% cut to GDP growth in, in projections in a McKinsey study. And so, um, both countries also receive foreign aid, um, and foreign direct investment, um, that will probably slow down to a certain extent. At least that's kind of what the experts are saying. Um, but there's also potential that capital will look for countries that are less affected, um, even if they have kind of, let's say, weaker dynamics when it comes to health um, systems uh, and infrastructure and Frankly, I think India's health system is, is really good. I've, I've seen a number of doctors while being in that country and the quality is is very high. And I know their level of education is is extremely high as well. But I think the capital will start to look for countries that are less affected. And let's be honest, the U.S. is not unaffected by this. In fact, I, I don't think that we're ranking very well vis-a-vis our Western counterparts. Um, so capital could actually flow into India, Kenya, Tanzania, Rwanda, Uganda. And we're seeing, seeing interesting opportunities. And I know we want to turn to opportunities in a bit, but we are seeing interesting opportunities to invest at Beyond
0: Capital. Yeah, everyone's talking about how, you know, if you're an investor, this is a great time to invest. And I do agree with that. Um, you better be keeping a little bit of your powder dry, just in case things don't go exactly as you plan with any portfolio company. But you know as an entrepreneur myself I've been through the I think it was like a reset the the dot bomb in 2000, 2001 which mm-hmm. also sort of uh, layered in with with 9 eleven 9 eleven didn't have a big economic effect relatively speaking and then the great recession in 2007 2008 and and now this one You know, thinking about opportunities and moving forward, the one thing that really kind of has stuck in my brain the last like five days, I can't get it out of my brain, is we assume the reaction to a significant economic drop would be a long recovery. People will take time to spend again, people will take time to invest again. But I don't know that there's ever been two super significant economic Drops within basically one generation. I mean, in 2007, 2008, and 2020, it's 13 years apart. Yeah. And it's like yesterday to me. And so, yeah, me too. Right. And so, if you think about it, there's all these business people who are kind of like, all right, well, I made it through the last one. I, everybody knows it's going to come back. And so, I just wonder if the mindset isn't more mature, more uh, understanding of how this works and people are not really afraid and panicking. I mean, I know if you're in the hotel or airline industry, that's different. You know, that's, I I, I don't, I don't have any, you know, answers for that, but, um, but for everybody else, I think there's just sort of like, yep, it's going to come back. So they're hanging in there and just waiting for the moment to invest.
1: Yeah, I've actually been speaking to a number of peer VCs that even do work in the US and all around the world. And when asking about their portfolios, nobody really says that it's total loss for the portfolio. Um, I think it's been a, a third, a third, a third of companies that happen to be providing essential goods and services that are doing well or even better. Then it's a couple companies that need to pivot their models a little bit to be more relevant in this time, and then there are a third of the businesses in these portfolios that just need to kind of go into hibernation mode and wait and see. But your point is really um, well put, which is like we've been primed for this type of crisis with the Great Recession, and we do know that you know the economy will come back, and everybody is saying, including Warren Buffett, you know, invest in america um and 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 that he's kind of except for airline stocks he's um he's bullish on america um which i think um actually i've I've had some thoughts around that too because a lot of people are very concerned about inflation it's a global concern and in economies that are not as equipped or not as certainly large as the american economy um, inflation can be even more problematic. And so um, in a YPO group um, related to personal investing, some of the the thoughts that came up were that there will be a flight to the dollar, which could help prop up um, any sort of, you know, deleterious effects of inflation um, that, you know, the doomsday people are talking about. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> the funny thing about the U S is the dollar is this reserve asset that, um, you know, a lot of countries, a lot of wealthy people in other countries, uh, they like the security of having dollars because dollars, yeah. I mean, let's face it, the U.S. has the rule of law. A lot of countries don't. And, I mean, they, they do in, in some fashion, but not the way we have it here. Um, you know, we have the intellectual property protection. We have a large and powerful military, which means that we're not likely to go away as a country anytime soon, and um, all that good stuff. So even if we're not necessarily viewed as like a world leader of moral uh, sort of standing these days, um, the economy is still a great place to park your money if you're a very wealthy person in another country that if you keep your money in that country, it could just get taken from you. Um, and if you you know, then you yeah. got to put it somewhere anyway. So then you're thinking about, well, where's the best place? So it's more about preservation of value than it is about anything else. Um, you know, just kind of preserving some of your assets. In the U.S., though, I mean, um, the amount of stimulus that they've that they're cranking up is you know, roughly equivalent to the amount that happened in World War II or Vietnam War. And um, in all cases where the government, even in the U.S., um, when the government has uh, you know pumped so much additional uh, money into the system it's it's just hard to imagine how how that will ever get paid back and mm-hmm. you know they're not going to like raise taxes to the point where they can pay it back and they're not going to start running deficits anytime soon in the future right it's not like we're going to go into fiscal restraint in the next ten years so so the the most likely outcome is is uh, a, you know somewhat slow but steady erosion of purchasing power through inflation. That's that's my belief. You know, I just don't see how that was going to happen anyway. Like if you think about the next 20, 30 years, people were sort of you know the deficit hawks, the inflation kind of uh, warning warning bell ringers. You know, but they couldn't get the timing right. Right, nobody knows when that was actually going to happen. I think now it's it's pretty clear that we'll be shifting into that phase uh, once the economy starts growing and and if it's true that it bounces back because we're all like experienced with a big economic downfall, then that means a lot of investment is sort of springing back and ready to go, ready to launch. So that would that would suggest a stronger economic recovery, which means more likelihood of inflation, but you know I'm not a billionaire, not yet anyway.
1: I was going to say, so yeah. And I know that um, you know when 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 people think about infl- inflation and where to invest their money, they think about gold, they think about Bitcoin, they think about um, different assets that um, maybe companies that have pricing power, like tech or essentials. But I'm really hoping that the screening on those assets as quote inflation proof assets can have an ESG lens. Can, it could be real assets that are, you know, forestry, sustainable forestry, or even green real estate, um, and assets that, uh, and you know, real estate's a whole su- separate subject, but assets that, um, have some sort of environmental, social and governance awareness to them or, or purpose driven underneath.
0: Well, absolutely, because another another sort of uh, vector or another source of energy into this equation is the generation that's entering the workforce and you know gradually taking over the country, and there's so much more focus on the environment, on social justice, social equality, governance, diversity, inclusion. Um, this generation that's coming into the workforce has been well educated on those things in in school and amongst their peers, and so their preferences will be made clear with their pocketbooks. I know my children's certainly are, and um, and so when I think about the confluence of those sort of uh, energy forces, I do think about about the um, purpose driven businesses with social environmental impacts and, and ones that, that are assets that can provide protection against debasement of currency because they are real assets and, and they have pricing power, I think those are going to be good places to be.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And BlackRock, Morningstar, Barron's, even the good old boys investing journal have said (laughs) that ESG is performing better um, in this time. And uh, I think that that also proves that that ESG is is a risk mitigation tool, um, helps to weather downturns perhaps better than the regular, more traditional view of stock markets. But you also brought up kind of the confluence of the next generation. 77% of millennials in a fidelity study have made an impact investment in their portfolios. Really? Yeah.
0: That's amazing. Yeah,
1: it is amazing. And I think that it it's, you know, you could think of that stat one way, which is, oh, it's good for millennials. It's not good for me. Or the other direction is being inspired by um, the the capability and the, also the business case for putting purpose-driven companies in, into your portfolio. And to share one example, in India, um, we are currently closing uh, an investment in a drone healthcare delivery company, um, which is, you know, a company that will be, needed, you know, definitely heading into the future. Um, The company ensures delivery is four times faster compared to conventional transportation of vaccines, blood transfusions, simply because of poor road infrastructure. And I'm sure a lot of people who are listening know the company Zipline in Africa, that's been quite successful um, in this space. So this is kind of the the India startup analog analog in there. They're getting their drones ready. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, the funny thing, too, when you think about that, um, you know, where people are investing, if you just, I think when you look at oil and gas, it's telling. Because in, in the old days, or, I mean, I'm here in Dallas, you're in Dallas, this, is, this isn't the heart of oil and gas, but Texas is pretty, pretty uh, big in oil and gas, as we know. And there's plenty of oil and gas people around around here. If you drew a 10-mile circle, I'm sure you'd get a bunch of them. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, in the old days, it used to be, hey, when oil crashed, people would buy it, and then, you know, they wait for it to go back up. And a lot of people made fortunes that way. And One of the reasons why oil is is not recovering as quickly is because, there, you know, there isn't as much of a long-term horizon for it. Um, you know, yeah. it's it's like, how do you factor in buying low when you don't know What percentage of the energy market you're really going to be serving. I mean, oil and gas is essential. Obviously, we all use it. Mm -hmm. And it's important. Um, It's not going away. But the way that that oil market got so out of whack to me is a is a sign of investors not so sure they want to come in for the long haul.
1: I agree. A friend of mine asked me who doesn't have, you know, much exposure to social impact investing in her portfolio. She said, well, what do you think about the low cost of oil? What's that going to do for the clean energy movement? And I think she expected me to say that it's going to be bad for the future of energy and for renewable energy. And I actually think it's going to be good because companies will look for yield where they can get it. So I've already seen evidence of small energy companies Looking towards the energy future and changing their businesses to be more open to renewable strategies, uh, there are some some large oil and gas companies um, that do this really well. I think Shell is one of them um, that has diversified their mix of energy sources um, so that they can move into kind of the the green energy transformation and still be relevant and not be the Kodak of oil and gas. Um, So I think it's a really excellent point about um, something that we're observing in our economy right now.
0: Yeah. I would say the low price of oil is a, is a, and and it not really rebounding the way other assets have is a, is a function of obviously the demand, but it's also to me a function of showing some weakness.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I want to turn to conscious leadership um, because that's something that we've talked about in past episodes. We had um, Sunny Vanderbeck on who is one of the co-founders of the conscious capitalism movement and, and, and really put, put conscious leadership um, into perspective for us on that episode. And um, I think the quote that he said was, you know, leaders are remembering to be humans when they're going to work and at the heart of all of these changes of businesses responding to COVID or treating their employees better, there is always a leader um, or a team of leaders running the show behind the scenes. And um, I wanted to update our um, audience on a few episodes uh, that we've had where um, there have been some up, we've we've received some updates on how companies are treating their employees. Our first episode, Jeffrey Brown who runs Brown Superstores. are story. 13. Yeah, I know. We wa- we wanted to hug him through the microphones. I know. Um, he's got 13 grocery stores in food deserts. He's increased hourly wages. He's provided additional pay. And he's also delivering medical supplies using his trucks and trailers um, in the New York City kind of tri-state area. Even though he's in Philadelphia, he's kind of moved in that direction. Um, then there's also Ajita Shah from Frontier Markets. Um, she's been pivoting her business to focus more on basic goods and services in India during the lockdown, especially in rural areas where there was concern over supply chains and distribution and how people were going to get the products that they need. She even got some licenses, licenses that Amazon couldn't. Um, and so, yeah, so it's, so, so companies have really been responding, um, Mixed, Leslie Silverglide, who we also interviewed, has been providing free meals to health workers. And um, and then we also have uh, spoken with Dan Price, or we will be speaking with Dan Price. Um, and he's just been of Gravity Payments. He's just been more communicative. And so I think there are just some simple tips for leaders in the way these companies have behaved.
0: Uh, Dan's a great story. And he, I mean, he's really out there. I out there promoting his cause. I saw him on Twitter. He's just, Hey, our small businesses have been I- impacted. If you have any great ideas on how we can help our small businesses, let me know. And, you know, he really was just leading from the front still is that guy's a juggernaut.
1: I agree. And he's just, he's authentic. And I, I believe that conscious leadership is, something that needs to be practiced from a very authentic and genuine place where the leader is holding to their mission and communicating their vision across the board um, and so I'm I'm also hopeful that we'll have more conscious leadership coming out of this pandemic um, and leaders will learn that treating their stakeholders well across the board, will yield results in the business and that will translate to the bottom line.
0: Yeah, I think it really starts with just thinking okay, today the pie is fixed. And so I have to think about how I'm going to start taking care of stakeholders or my employees and and a lot of these things cost money. You know, you you can you can say with all the words that you want that you're you know, empowering your employees, but at the end of the day, um, they need they need the financial support to back those things up. Whether it's paid time off, or more healthcare benefits, or more flexibility in their schedules, whatever those things may be, then the pie starts to grow. So I think the leap of faith is like on day one, it's a fixed pie, but as the pie starts to grow, then. It's like, oh, wait a second, now the pie's bigger because I'm starting to do these things. And maybe that's part of, the, part of why we're doing this podcast is just to try to, to help more leaders and more managers understand that when you do the right thing, you can actually benefit from some of this tailwind coming from the new generations and coming from their purchasing decisions, but also coming from the power of your employees when, they're, when they are energized and taken care of.
1: Yeah. And yeah, I mean, now is when the value of stakeholders is, is most valuable and we're really seeing that model be paramount to doing business. And I think it's also a chance for companies to get out of being transactional once and for all and kind of rethink their models as, as you, as you pointed out.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's important not to be naive as a leader because some of your competitors may not be enlightened. And, mm. and so it's really, at least from, from, my, from my experience, there's like a, a sort of benevolence and a, and a purpose that, that you want to be derived from, from the heart and from your belief that doing good is going to do better. But then you do also have to have the straight-up business-savvy to be careful and make sure that you read those contracts, and yeah, you know, <laughs> uh, take care of your financial obligations and all the things that that are necessary. Because um, just doing good isn't gonna isn't gonna always give you a pass with a customer who's unhappy or you know a lender who's not getting their money back. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's an excellent point. Uh, how are you seeing relational wealth change?
0: Well, we're, we're just seeing people really feeling it more and being more willing to talk about it. It's if you're in the hotel industry or travel, you know, they're they're reeling and they're just trying to find the find the find their footing, really. Um, but with With businesses that are operating, you know, and and the people we're talking to, we're seeing a, you know, an an increase in our website traffic, sessions, inbound leads, user activity, Um, all that stuff has been pretty positive for us, I appreciate anyway, and, you know, our, our business is to try to help people build relational wealth or build the value of their relationships, more high quality, authentic relationships so this is this has been a positive um, for everybody, I think, um, aside from those who have direct you know i think I think there are populations for whom this crisis has really really uh, not been good um, yeah you know uh, women in situations or children in situations of domestic violence is probably the yes. one that that really hits my heart. Um, just thinking about that, um, it's sort of, I think about me feeling cooped up. And then I think about that. Um, Mm -hmm. I think about food and just all the food insecurity that people are feeling and, and experiencing the long, you know, miles, long, um, lines for, for, for food banks, you know, Makes clear how much food comes from schools. Um, yes, you, you know, and you and you look at um, the, the stories of parents who um, just don't have enough food in their refrigerator. Yes,
1: um,
0: so you know, there's there's the the fortunate who who have a, a increase in their relationships and increase in spending time with their family and more time on the phone with their friends and you know as soon as as soon as we can we have to take some of our time and allocate it towards those needy populations uh, because um you know there's there's nothing else we can do, but, but help them try to help. them. Yeah.
1: And we've talked offline about the underserved and the, the kind of other side of the coin, um, from the opportunities about how people are being impacted. And also the fact that we both agree or, or feel or think that there will be a widening of the wealth gap, which is problematic. Um, And so that's, that's something I know that we've also touched on
0: Um,
1: while a depression, you know, is unknown 50, 50 split amongst who we're talking to. I think most would agree that the wealth gap is widening.
0: Well, it's driven and has been driven by automation because it's more, requires higher degrees of skill and education to, you know, to program and operate robots. What's a small group of people can build a, hundred thousand robots the trend of automation is is already been happening. This will accelerate it because the companies that that have um, crowded factories or or other types of um, you know manual processing will will try to reduce their reliance on you know machines that can get sick, which is what people are you know i think I think that you know maybe long term the only answer to that is really better. Education, um, you know, I think that's why so many nonprofits and philanthropists focus on education because that's where you can really yeah. make a difference. Um, just like the interview we were doing today with Christine with the musical instruments, like there's, you know, that's helping cognitive development and creating more opportunity for people to to, to jump across that that gap. Um, yeah. So I think it really, to me, it just boils down. You know, when it comes to charity or nonprofits, there's really two types, right? There's, there's prevention and there's pain relief. And, um, and we need to always have both because we'll never be able to prevent all the bad things from happening. So we need food banks to take care of people who need food. But then we have to take a good portion of our resources and allocate them towards prevention. And that's primarily education and all the yeah. things that support education.
1: I agree, and just a note on the state of nonprofits. Nonprofits are going to have a hard time um, based on you know who funds them. I mean, sure, if it's a long-term commitment from a large foundation, they'll probably be okay. But a lot of nonprofits do rely on smaller contributions, Um, and I think that there's there's a thinking that a lot of smaller nonprofits will struggle.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised about that.
1: So to sum up, I wanted to ask you your thoughts on which industry you think will kind of emerge stronger in the post-COVID scenario.
0: My f- The first thing that came to my head was software. Yep.
1: Said so- from a software entrepreneur. Well,
0: <laughs> that's why I said, that's why I says the first thing that came to my head. Um, I think the software business, you know, it's not as capital intensive, you know, so, it can it can cross geographies information needs to move just like we were um, talking with the uh, you know the full harvest uh, ceo Christine how connecting supply to demand more efficiently
1: yeah
0: um, can you know th- those types of models i think will be very continue to be popular and grow i i i do think like um There'll be a resurgence of sort of food, and you know, seeing that as like a really strong, secure kind of—you know—everybody needs to eat. Everybody needs certain things, and of course, healthcare is going to—you know—that's kind of obvious. There's going to be a lot of healthcare mm-hmm. um, stuff going on, um, but yeah. less transportation, I think, uh, for for a little while anyway. What about you?
1: You know, I think it's going to come around education um, or I, I agree with yeah. you actually on on the food and healthcare um, and software, um, but healthcare really stood out to me, but um, to add on to that, I think there will be a revolution in education models because.
0: Well, I agree according- with that. I agree with that. I, I, I thought you, you asked me which ones were going to benefit the most. I think education is going to be the one that gets disrupted the most.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I and I think the, the leaders of that disruption will benefit the most. Um, There's currently not a good online classroom interface for, especially for younger children. Oh my gosh, they're terrible. Yeah. Well, it's zoom basically. And it's not, it's not set up for that. It's set up for kind of more corporate meetings. Um, And I think that, Certain schools will reformulate structures over the next 18 months, potentially until we have a vaccine. At least that's what the head of a large hospital system is saying in my network. And that could actually change some of the ways that education is done um, for the future um, if there are some benefits to smaller groups or kind of different types of schedules. Um, And so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I actually would love to see the innovation that comes in 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 education because not every child has access to the same level of education until it's democratized and technology's always been known to be a factor in that democratization.
0: Yeah, I mean I think that's the final word right there. It's definitely <laughs> I mean the education disruption and those yeah. who who enable it. That's that's not my space, but that's definitely absolutely enormous opportunity. You just I mean, my son, who is in college, he was taking a class over Zoom from a professor, and uh, this particular professor was not very good, and could barely understand them. And I'm just—I was wondering, like, why does he have to take this class from this professor? Well, it's because they're at this university, but he could be taking it from any professor from any university who's, yeah. who would be really, really good at teaching it. So why is why are the best teachers not getting their courses out and why is it that we have have these older models of distributing knowledge like the lecture hall that yep. you know I don't know hybrid models for sure will be the hybrid. the beginning but um yeah it's maybe the homeschoolers knew something all along
1: I think you might be right <laughs> All right. This has been fun as usual. It's always great to muse with Ed Stevens. And thank you all for listening. And hopefully this is valuable for the leaders and leaders out there and investors out there that listen to our podcast.
0: Absolutely. And you can catch me at uh, EA Stevens on Twitter.
1: And you can find me at Conscious Investor on Instagram.
0: So everybody have a great day. Thanks for listening.
1: Thank you. Bye.